so 1 Samuel chapter 28 is where we're going to kind of tee off this morning. But let's do a quick recap of how we got to 1 Samuel 28. Uh, Saul has been king now for about 40 years, okay, uh, give or take in, in that general parad uh, paradigm of time. And he is an older man. Yeah, no, it's hot in here, brother. Come on in. You'll feel it in a minute. Um, and for the last two or three years, David has been on the lamb over in the Philistine territory. He actually has been working as a four-hire mercenary for uh, the king of Gath, named King Achish of Gath, whose hometown hero was killed by David in a famous battle. Goliath is from Gath. And for whatever reason, uh, that is the place that David fled to after having spent years on the run from Saul, King Saul, who wanted to kill David. It had long been reported, it has long since been known, that the kingdom of God had been pulled from Saul because he was disobedient years before, and we're just playing out the theater. It's the drama of life, and so that's kind of where we are. The end of chapter 27, uh, David has been uh, working for the king of Gath, Achish, the king of Gath, for some two to three years. Um, he had been given a small village to stay in called Ziklag. That has been David's kind of hometown. And he would go out in the morning, go to work. He'd go attack uh, a neighboring village, wipe them out completely, men, women, and children, animals, donkeys, take all their home goods and bring them back. He would pay his tribute to King Achish and tell King Achish, hey, I wiped out that Israeli town over there. But in fact, he would go wipe out somebody else. Uh, so he was kind of playing this double agent game. All the while, he is secretly funneling information back to King Saul's son, Jonathan, letting him know, this is where I am. This is what's going on. Don't, don't get too irate. I'm not taking out our people. I'm kind of playing this almost triple agent at, at some point of information on misinformation on information. And in 1 Samuel 28, a turning point in the history of the nation of Israel begins to happen, okay? So, chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, the king of Gath, uh, the Philistine king, said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now what, this, what, what has developed here is a very strong trust relationship between Achish to David. And David is going to be uh, essentially the secret service, if you will, to King Achish when they go to war with Israel. Now, we've got a couple problems with this. Uh, in this day and age when warfare was taking place, it was much like chess. You take the king, you take the field. We didn't have to fight to the death. As long as the king died, the other, you, you, your king, you die, your whole group resigns, and you become a, a spoil of our victory. Okay, So having David as his bulldog was a pretty good idea. David's, everywhere David seemed to go, David seemed to win. Well, they're going to go up against King Saul and the nation of Israel. Does anybody know who King Saul's bulldog is? Do what? Jonathan, and actually we'll find out a couple of his other sons have risen to prominence in the conflict of war, and they're actually going to be all around Saul. 
So we have a setup for a big problem because David and Jonathan have sworn a, a, a covenant that they would do each other no harm and do their family, their, their down-the-line family, no harm. So we've kind of set ourselves up for an interesting turn uh, if this thing pursues. Verse, verse 3. Now Samuel, Samuel is the prophet. He has recently died in the last few years. Um, probably it's been about four or five years since the prophet of Samuel has died. The reason why it's mentioned here is to kind of, again, tie in the concept that the prophetic office has altered. Samuel, when he was the prophet, he functioned as almost like a de facto king or a ruler. But when Samuel died, all of that went away, and it was just the monarchy, specifically the monarchy that people could see, King Saul, and the monarchy that people wanted, which was who? King David, right? So you have these dueling forces. So Samuel was dead, and all of Israel had lamented, and they buried him in Ramah, which is where he was from, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Now, this is kind of an interesting lead-in. This is a command back from the Old Testament book of Leviticus, where God told his people there should be no mediums, no spiritualists, no witches, uh, warlocks, things of that nature in the land of God. That we don't want anybody in here talking to other other deities, other gods. Only only God's people can stay here. So maybe in uh, an act of, you know, a, a last wishes kind of way, Samuel uh, had said, "Man, I really wish that in my lifetime we could have just wiped all this out." And maybe kind of in the last couple of years after Samuel had died, Saul had said, "You know what?" I'm going to do one solid for the old man and had began to systematically wipe out the, the witches, the spiritualists, the, the spiritual mediums. But something terrible happens, verse 4. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all of Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. Now let me see if I can show you this picture up here on the screen. Um, so can you see that picture? Okay, kind of middle up, uh, almost the very high, the highest one says Philipp the Philistines camp at Shunem. That's where they are, okay? And it says here in the text that uh, Saul camped out at Gilboa. If you'll look kind of the bottom left corner over here, kind of like that three slash in the middle, that's where Saul is. So his people are kind of up on this hill. Can y'all see that? Am I? I'll get up. This is kind of where Saul's going to hang out. He's going to camp out. And over there is where uh, the Philistines are going to camp out. And right over there where it says the battle in the Jezreel Valley, actually where that number two is, you can't really see it in the fog, but there is a small mountain over there called Endor. All right? It's important to understand that geography. It's not the, uh, not the, the, uh, the rebel moon of uh, the Star Wars Return of the Jedi series, although... George Lucas did rip off a lot of good Bible names to create things like that. Uh, but it wasn't the, the moon of, uh, of the uh, Death Star. That's not what we're going with. But when we enter this story, just know that if you're in Endor, or you're in Gilboa, or you're in the Shunem Valley, or Mount Tabor, on a good, clear morning, you can see everything in the valley. It's important to notate that because... Um, this medium has kind of got it over the years gotten credit for telling the future 
or seeing things that can't be seen. But if you were sitting, if you were her neighbor, you would have seen all of the stuff she was seeing. You would have known all of the stuff that she knew. Okay, so we got that picture in our head. All right, let's go. So verse 5, so when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Why? He was massively outnumbered. All of the Philistine, there were five major factions in the Philistines. They had all come north to meet here in Shunem, and they were going to put an end to this business right here. Okay? Uh, to make a correlation, this was going to be a real Russia versus Ukraine kind of situation. They were going to get crushed. They were heavily, heavily outnumbered. They were heavily outsourced, heavily outarmored, and, and, and they're going to come in and they're going to crush uh, Israel once and for all. And who can see this more plainly than anybody? King Saul. All right. And Saul falling back on some of his historical personal roots. Look what he does. Verse six, Saul inquired of the Lord. But what, what happened? What's your Bible say? The Lord did not answer him. So somewhere he's reached out to a priest. They have brought out the ephod. Uh, they have brought out the devices that God had given the Israelites in the Old Testament to communicate with God and to, to discern God's spirit. Perhaps they cast lots. That was a, a regular and routine thing, nothing uh, outside of the mystical realm in this day and age. And, and yet he asked God, you know, he, they shake up the magic eight ball of, all right, God, what do we do? And um, nothing turns up. Like, oh, no, what do we do? So Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim, uh, that's the devices, or by the prophets. So Saul was really seeking God's will at this point. And the most terrifying thing that could ever happen is God is silent. It's one thing to be told no by God. You can get mad at God for, you know, right? Your parents tell you no, you can be, ugh, you're ruining my life, right? Um, but when you ask and there's no response, this gets really, this, this really agitates uh, Saul's spirit. Uh, verse 7, so Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go and inquire to, to her and inquire of her, of her. What's the problem with this uh, strategy? What has Saul just done? He got rid of them all, all right? Uh, so... Uh, uh, this is Caleb Clark's personal opinion. When you close down all of the big, uh, the big stores, right? If you really want a good medium, a really good, good spiritualist, you, you go to the to the good people. But if you wipe them all out or run them all out of town, who are you left with? Yeah, the uh, the the Fred's dollar store. Uh, you know, the local five and dime version of them, and they've got to lay low. Right, and they so they're they're not good to start with, all right? Because uh, you know well, they didn't get caught, they weren't good enough to really. So he's stuck with this uh, discount um, uh, medium, all right? Keep that in mind, because I want to ask you a few questions in a minute. So Saul said to his servant, "Seek for me a woman in verse seven who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her." And his servant said, "Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor, right?" Just over the ridge there, kind of in the fog. She's out there. She can see all this playing out. And then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes. And he went, he and two of his men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Now let's just ask some quick factoid questions, okay? Um, 
Do y'all recall how Saul was described in his appearance when he came on the on, online as king? Good looking, tall. How how tall? Head and shoulder. Did he stick out in the crowd? Yeah. Okay. How long has he been king? A long time. Uh, so his name, his face is on all the uh, the postage stamps of Israel. Uh, was was he an unknown commodity in the nation of Israel? No. Uh, what's the easiest way to identify? Well, he's tall. Um, is it easy to tell a fifty to sixty year old man who has been well taken care of and well fed from someone who has not been well taken care of and well fed? Okay, so there's probably not a lot of 50 to 60-year-old men, head and shoulders tall and everybody else, that still look good in this day and age. Uh, but he's going to disguise himself by putting on a Groucho Marx mask, uh, 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 you know, glasses and a, and a mustache. He's going to put a hoodie on, and he's going to sneak in by night with two of his, his, uh, two of his guys. Um, have you ever seen soldiers walk into a room and they weren't in uniform, but you knew they were soldiers? How, how did you know that? Yeah, their posture, their presence, their haircut, right? J because they said grunt style on their T-shirt. Uh, can you tell a military man without knowing emphatically? He, yeah. So a head and shoulders tall guy comes in by night with two of his homeboys. Is any disguise really going to be that good? Okay, take, I want you to take that into account as we file in this story, fill in this story. So Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and went in, he and two of his men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall I'll name to you. So he's like, I'm going to pay you, uh, and then I'm going to give you a name, and then you're going to call this guy back from the dead and communicate with him, right? And the woman said, Behold, you know that Saul, what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land, why are you then laying a snare for me and my life to bring about my death? So what, what is she, I mean, does she call him out almost right out? All right, so three tall, strong guys walk in. What can she see in the valley? Everything. She can see the Philistines mustering. She can, she can see the, Israeli, uh, the Israelite armies mustering. Um, she, she's not an idiot, right? Um, but here she is. He says, you're going to bring up a, a, you know, she knows Saul's in the zip code, too. That doesn't hurt, hurt at all. Um, and he, she, she says, response, well, I can't, you know, the king. Uh, we don't even know any of those people around here. Those have long since moved on. Verse 10, Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, fine, you tricked me, King Saul. <laughs> uh, who do you want me to bring up? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. All right. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Was she tricked at all ever? You can answer that. No. no she wasn't buying this. She knew exactly who was asking, and she knew exactly what was going on. Was it a known known that Samuel had taken the kingdom from Saul? Was it a known was it a known fact? Yeah, it had been known for some 35 years that Saul would not carry on the lineage. He had not destroyed the enemies of God the way he was told to. 
and uh, Saul had made a very public, or Samuel had made a very public um, dis, uh, uh, what am I thinking of? A discommendation, if you will, of King Saul, and he even went ahead and anointed a replacement king. Right? I remember that? Like some 15 years ago, he'd done that with, Saul, with David. Um, does this woman know that? Everybody knows that. And so she says, You're, you've deceived me, and, uh, and I'm going to bring up Samuel anyway. And here we go. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she says, It's an old man coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me. God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either through the prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you, Samuel, that you would make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary, your enemy? The Lord has done accordingly all he has spoken through me, and the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, Saul, and he's given it to, the, to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce, wrath, his fierce wrath on the Amalekites, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel, along with you, into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will go over this, uh, go over the army of Israel, uh, give over the uh, army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. All right, how have you heard this passage taught before? Did any y'all go to uh, like any little Christian academies when y'all were kids and have to go through the Abeka program with the flannel grams? Any y'all? I did. All right, how was this story taught to you? You went to public school. Y'all don't have. The flannel graphs of Jesus and the disciples? Okay. How have y'all heard this taught traditionally? What is going on over there? Oh, it's Big Breakfast. It's Big Breakfast. Yeah. How have you heard this before? Let me be more specific. Is this a real spiritual encounter based on your understanding? Okay. So this witch of Endor or this uh, medium of Endor has called up the dead soul of Samuel. Is that how you've heard this taught before? How, how else have you you've done this? How have you heard it? I really don't remember hearing this story before, but I, I don't know. I don't think it was just from okay. knowing that she knew or was, like she could take inferences from things, so I feel like she maybe had some things in her pocket she knew she was Oh, and low smart. <laughs> All right. So let's talk just real quick, real quick about the evolution of the Bible, okay? Because uh, when I was a kid, uh, maybe like you, there was this thought that somehow, you know, and then the Bible just kind of landed in our lap, and now we have it. Well, that's just not how it happened. That's not how the Bible says it happened. It came through years of different people being inspired by the Spirit of God to write it down. It was written in ancient Hebrew, and in some places in the Old Testament it's written in Aramaic, and then sometime about the, the age of Alexander the Great, two to three hundred years before 
uh, Jesus stepped into human history, they all got together and said, we need to compile all the books in the world that we can get our hands on into one common language. The language of the common man at that day was Greek, Koine Greek to be specific. And there was a commission done to take the Hebrew and Aramaic and translate what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible into Greek. This would have been the Bible Jesus and Paul would have learned it from elementary school. Okay. The word for medium in that Greek translation that's called the Septuagint, I'm throwing a lot of words at you, forgive me, but the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. You can go online, you can go buy you a copy of the Septuagint uh, if you want to. The word that the Greeks translated medium into is a word we're very familiar with. It's called ventriloquist. Now, I want you all to think about that. What does a ventriloquist do in our day and age? Furthermore. Right. What, what do we generally use ventriloquists for in our society? They're what? Entertainers. They're entertainers, right? Well, up until about 200 years ago, all ventriloquists were considered to be spiritualists or mediums. Because, uh, Jerry, you, you wanted to communicate with uh, some long-lost relative, uh, call it 250 years ago, and they had recently passed, and they forgot to give you the, the family a biscuit recipe and you wanted to know where it was so you'd go pay your money and they would they would mm, they'd channel with their crystal ball and their bead you know their all their turbans and stuff and they would glean generalized information and then let you fill in the rest of the gaps so let's look back at what this woman says right he says what do you see verse 14 and she says it's an old man wrapped in a robe how generic i mean his name was samuel he was a a public figure that everyone knew had lived and died a very long very very lived a long time what's a safe assumption that he wore at some point in his life a robe his old man come out of the ground in a robe all right he goes oh i see him oh i see a man in a robe and and look uh Saul falls right in line with it. Verse 14, Saul knew it was Samuel. Last time I saw him, he was in a robe. I remember that. Right? Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Yes. And, he wants, and, does, and does Saul want to see and hear from Samuel? Yes. By the way, has he seen Samuel? Look at this text. Does he see it? No. What is... Who's the only one that sees Samuel? The, 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 the witch of Endor. <laughs> right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. All right? And then, look. Um, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now, how is he talking to Samuel? He can't see him. How is he talking to Samuel? Through her. Through her. Through her. Because she's a what? AKA a ventriloquist. So she's sitting there in a dark room and a man, an old man's voice speaks from over in the corner. Have you ever been to a live ventriloquist show? Mm -hmm. Right. You've watched some, uh, a good ventriloquist is creepy. You've been, is it creepy? No, because it's entertainment purpose. Okay. Same thing. All right. 
Uh, Jeff Dunham is a very good popular. Watch his face, and you really can't tell he's doing anything. But the character he creates is believable, Mm -hmm. is it not? Mm -hmm. Right? This woman has been doing this on the low key. Saul has a vested interest in believing her. He is overlooking a lot of contextual clues in his stress, right? And boom, this voice, this disembodied voice begins to speak. And everything the voice says, everyone already knows. She doesn't bring anything new to the table. She tells him, um, uh, um, Samuel said to Saul, so this voice says to Saul, why have you disturbed me or, uh, by bringing me up from the dead? Um, Saul said, well, I'm distressed. All this stuff's happening. There, he, Saul fills in some of the gaps. He tells the woman, look, the Philistines are waging war. God won't talk to me. He won't uh, listen to me anymore. Um, and I've, I've called you that you can make known to me what I should do. And Samuel, or this disembodied voice of Samuel, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, says, why do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Again, common knowledge. Everyone had known this had happened a long time ago. They'd known Saul was going crazy for years. And he continues, the Lord has done accordingly all he spoke. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Who, who knew that? Everybody. Jonathan himself, the prince, the heir to the throne of Saul, had already told David, if Saul dies, I'm going to make you king, David. I'll serve you. Everybody knew this. So take from this what you need to, but my opinion is uh, this witch of Endor was in fact, uh, she was somewhat of just kind of a, we'll call it a contextual clairvoyant, right? You ever watch that sitcom? It's called Psych. You ever watch that a couple of years where the main character's name is Sean. He was raised by a father who was a detective who taught him to constantly look at details. So now in his young adult life, he, he pretends to be a psychic. But all he does is goes to crime scenes and he looks around, right? He picks up clues that not everybody else is seeing. I think that's what she's doing. She's a sharp girl, right? She's a sharp lady. And she's picking up the basic clues that Saul's given her. And then she just feeds back to him everything she already knows. She knows the Philistines are, are way overmatching him. And, and so he goes away. Uh, he's very sad. Look at verse 20. Saul immediately fell full length on the ground, was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten uh, food all day and all night. This was a standard practice for, uh, for Saul. He wasn't a, he's kind of a one or two trick pony. If you recall, way, 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 way back in the, in the history of the early part of his kingdom, he was wondering what he was going to do with the Philistines. His son, Jonathan, snuck out of camp with one other person and whipped a whole National Guard armory of Philistines. Okay? And Saul said, the king, oh, no, what happened? And they said, oh, your son went off, fought this war. It was a great thing. And Saul says... The battle belongs to the Lord. No one should eat or drink for the rest of the day until all of this is done. And so everyone was put under an oath. So you have them fighting all day and all night with no food or energy because Saul thought that was a good idea. Has he changed much? No. When he gets under stress, he falls back into old rituals, uh, religious rituals, that may or may not be very helpful at all. 
So he hasn't eaten. Um, of course, he's really stressed out, so maybe he just hadn't thought about it. Uh, verse 21, the woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand, and I've listened to your words which you've spoken to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. However, his two secret service agents, together with the woman, urged him. He listened, so he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And the woman had a fattened calf in the house, okay? So it was not uncommon. When night falls, you bring your cattle in. There's a little manger scene down at the end of the house. It's a very common build in this area. Keeps the animals safe, keeps the houses warm. <clears throat> and she has this fat, fatted calf. She hacks it up real quick, gives a little medium rare, and, and feeds, the, feeds old King Saul. Like, hey, look, here's some meat, here's some bread. Please leave. It's time for you to go. But, he, but verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly slaughtered it. She took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread for them. And she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and they arose, and they went away that night. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, which is in, uh, the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. So kind of that deep valley over there, and that's where they're going to muster up for the morning battle. Uh, and the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men, he has 600 of them, uh, were proceeding on the rear with Achish. That's where the king is. And the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Uh, and Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me uh, to this day. So they're all mustering up. They're in their Philistine uniforms, right? They've got their, their sashes and their, you know, we're the, we're from here. And then David and his 600 thugs are over there. You know, they're out there stretching, right? You're like, all right, okay. They, they, they roll out of the camp just a little bit late because they don't care. Because uh, what are you going to do? Because we'll just whoop all of y'all anyway. And, uh, and the king's like, this is David. David, uh, look, <laughs> homeboy can fight. He's on my team. And all the officers of the Philistines were like, mm, no, uh, we're not comfortable with this. Well, why would they not be comfortable with it? Well, take your Bibles. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 14 real quick. Uh, this has happened before where the Hebrews, uh, who were kind of the thugs, they didn't like getting beat up, and they're like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And uh, in chapter 14, uh, verse 21 When you get there, look at me, so I know you're there. All right, very good. It says, Now the Hebrews, who were hanging out with the Philistines previously, went up with them all around in the camp. Even they turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. So a large group of Hebrews had joined in kind of the, the foreign legion, uh, the Philistine foreign legion, uh, but they were Hebrews. They were Israelites. And they had joined the Philistines. But when the battle turned against the Philistines, the Hebrews were like, <laughs> we out, and turned and fought alongside of their kinsmen to kill the Philistines. Well, here you have 600 of the baddest men in the army on the rear guard of the king. 
at the back of the fight? Uh-oh. And the, the, the commanders of those the Philistines were like, uh, they ain't got to go home, but they ain't staying here to fight. So they, they kind of uh, petitioned King Achish. Verse 4, the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said, make the man go back that he may return to his place, that would be at Ziklag, his city, where you have assigned him. Do not let him go down to battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his, ten, his thousands, but David his ten thousands? Now, you, you, let, me, let me ask you this question. In the heat of battle, if Saul and David met each other on the field of battle, and it's kill King Achish or kill, King, kill Prince Jonathan, what do you think David's going to do? Oh, in a heartbeat, right? Jonathan is, if Jonathan's hands or life is in David's hand, it is as safe as a baby in his mother's arms. There is no doubt David would turn on King Achish. There is zero doubt, okay? But he's going to get removed from that equation. Now, how do you think that makes David feel? Okay, a little bit relieved, but this is a warrior. I like a good fight. Let's go pick a good fight. That's a good day to die. I mean, for you. Because uh, I'm going to win this. Uh, let's just be real honest. Uh, all I do, put your hands in the air. Right. And so David puts on a good show, though. Verse 6. Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army are pleasing in my sight. Telling us right here, right now, Achish doesn't know. He doesn't know David's been hitting these other towns and lying about it for three years. Okay? He thinks David is fully in the pocket, right? And David's like, yeah, I, I, I got your back, bro. Uh, I'll keep paying my taxes. You keep your mind off my business. He says, King Achish says, I, found, I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this very day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the other officers. Now, therefore, return and go in peace that you may not displease the lords, the commanders, the officers of the Philistine armies. And David said to Achish, and I can just see him kind of stomping his foot a little bit, right? Because what have I done, right? Uh, this is the same phrase he used with his brothers uh, when he was a little, little tight, 14, 15 years old, when he went to fight Goliath and his brothers kept picking on him. Going, You're just a little punk kid. Go back with the sheep. Nobody wants you here. And he turns to his brother and goes, what have I done? Right? David hadn't changed that much. He's still a kid. And uh, he says, what, what have you found in your servant from the day that I came before you to this very day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders, the officers of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us to this battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your lord, who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. Meaning, you got to go home. You, it's not your day. It's not your day. Uh, so David arose early, he and his men, and they went to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, interesting stuff's happening. All the Philistines have come north. Let me see if I have a picture. 
Boom. See the red lines? Okay. All the Philistines have come north to that top point, Endor, Shunem, Jezreel, Mount Gobal, all of that. All the armies have marched north. Well, y'all see down at the very bottom that word Ziklag? Do y'all see that? South of there, about, oh, about an hour, is the community of the Amalekites. Okay? And the Amalekites and the Israelites and the Philistines don't always get together. Like, they're, 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 they're rivals. Okay? They're like Pearl Brandon. You know, whatever. And if, if, if you know, look, if you have a bad day, eh, won't hurt my feelings much at all. All right? But all the Philistines, they have come together and they said, this is the time we're going to wipe out Saul. Saul moves north with his small army and the Philistines move out in force. Boom. Leaving their southern border undefended. And who lives on the southern border of the Philistines and the Amalekites? Well, it's David's family. 600 men have family and homes and cattle down in Ziklag. Well, where is David? David has moved north with the Philistine king, King Achish, leaving his hometown unguarded. Check this out. Verse 1 of chapter 30. And it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev, that is the southern region, and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. So they roll up into the house. It's kind of like that scene from uh, Gladiator. I know that's now a classic movie. That was a cool movie when I was younger. Uh, you know, he comes home and there's dead bodies and there's dead horses and burned houses and all of their groceries are gone and all of their cars are gone and everything's gone. The, the Amalekites came in and wiped them out. Uh, verse 2, they took captive the women and all who were in it both small and great, without killing anyone. Well, maybe I just lied to you. And they carried them off, and they went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people who were with them lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Right? So this was an emotionally difficult season for David. Right? He had just marched his 600 guys up. They had been ginning up. For war, he had been told, I know you're the starter. I know you're the number one QB. You're, we're going to bench you. Matter of fact, not only we're going to bench you, you got to go home. Get on the plane and get back home right now. Took him three days to march home, dragging his sword behind him. So he's a little frustrated. He's sad, and he rolls up, and he sees smoke on the horizon. They come in, and everything he has ever worked for in his entire life is now gone. His reputation is gone. His possessions are gone. His two of his uh, three wives <laughs> are gone. His other wife is married to another dude. We'll meet him in a couple weeks. He's an interesting character, or she is. Um, so they all wept. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, uh, Miss America, uh, she, was, she was quite the looker. Abigail, the widow of, widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed uh, because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So not only is he having a bad day, but now the very people that he has 
led for years now in their mental and spiritual anguish. They're getting up a, a lynch party. They're going to stone David. They're like, let's kill him. This is his fault. He's the one that put us in this position. Blah, 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 yakety yak. And this is calls for heartburn for David. <laughs> so he goes into his prayer closet and says, Lord, um, I don't know what your plan is, but if it could kind of show up at any time, like soon, I'd really appreciate it. Verse 7, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And God said to him, Pursue, you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So that was probably a big whoosh, moment for David. He goes back to his people and goes, Look, I've talked to the Lord. The Lord has always been square with me. And he says, If we leave right now, everything we thought we lost, we can reclaim. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Basor, uh, where those left behind remain. David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 were too exhausted to cross the brook of Basor, remaining behind. Now, just a quick recap on that. One of the times uh, Saul was pursuing David, there was word that a Philistine army had camped out against an Israelite city. David swings in like Batman to the rescue with 400 men. But when he left, he left with 600 men. So the 200 that he added, likely after that battle, were not as thick-skinned. They weren't, I mean, they were with David, but they, were, they weren't as strong. They didn't have the stamina. They didn't have the spiritual, mental, or physical ability to continue on like the other guys who had been with David the whole time, right? That's my guess. That's Caleb Clark's guess. But it seems like the numbers always seem to work out. The 400 super troopers left the 200 guys in the rear with the gear and said, you guys are slowing us down. You guard the backpacks. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take care of business, and we'll come back. Um, so that's exactly what they did. On their way in verse 11, something interesting happens. They found an Egyptian in the field, and they brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Um, uh, so uh, it's free for your dollar uh, if you want it. Uh, cakes of figs and raisin uh, increase circulation. They increase uh, a lot of things. Um, in certain contexts, God had prohibited the Israelites from eating too many cakes of raisins and figs because uh, it was known in the ancient culture to be somewhat of an aphrodisiac right? To kind of lighten the mood a little bit. Um, uh, probably because they fermented so much. Well, a lot of things probably happened there. Um, but nevertheless, they give him the type of uh, things that they think would stimulate and, and raise him up from his, uh, his fatigue and his stupor. But he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to the man, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt a servant of an Amalekite. My master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. All right? So his, his boss just left him. Just, look, you're slowing us down. Now, why, does he have, why is he worried about being slowed down? He just, yeah, he just, yeah. You don't, mm. you don't mess with that 
we need to get out of here. All right. So they left the slow guy behind, just laying in the field, and they get him and they get some good intel. Uh, and and uh, verse 14, we made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belonged to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. I'm sorry, what? Say that into my good ear, please. You did what to who? Yeah, we burned Ziklag. And David said to him, um, would you recognize your boss if I showed him to you in a lineup? And he goes, well, Will you bring me down to this band, David says. And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my evil master, and I will bring you down to this band. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. All right, that's code. They have just stole a bunch of animals and good drink and good ladies. Everybody's out fighting Right? All the Philistines and the Israelites, all our enemies are up there. They're way up north. They're way, they're way up there. We ain't got to worry about nothing. We took everything. So they come south. They're having a party. And David and 400 very, very angry. Angry. And hangry. Angry. And a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of emotions. And they kind of look down over the ridge and they go, oh, it's going to happen right here. And, and so doth it. Um, at verse 17, David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So 400 men, young men, 400 camels disappear. But all the rest, David takes back. He either kills or takes back. Verse 19 tells us something very interesting. Uh, verse 18, I'm sorry. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great. Sons or daughters, spoil or anything they had taken for themselves, David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of their other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. So they were like, all right, David, good victory. All right, this is how ancients fought war, okay? Uh, uh, most of you know that uh, I'm in the Air Force, uh, they pay me to be in the Air Force, right? They, they do that. They, they, uh, first and 15th every month, I get a check that says, thank you for your service, sir. Um, in this day and age, uh, the government didn't pay their soldiers quite like this, right? You're kind of responsible for yourself. And if you wanted riches and glory, how did you acquire it? You had to be a good fighter. So it was an advantage to lean in and be aggressive. So... The riches came from your spoils of war. Your glory came from your peers' respect. Okay? And they would know. Because in battle, if I'm out here kind of hiding behind Big Boy right here, and I'm just kind of sticking out and like sticking somebody like, man, get off of me, man. That's not much glory, right? I got to get out here. I got to stand toe-to-toe with my enemies if I'm going to earn my right to be part of this crew. David, every time he steps out, he always earns his right. Okay, now, do we have somewhat of a problem? Yes. How many troops does David have under him? 600. How many went to war with this, the Amalekites? 400, which means there are 200 left in the back. Is there a potential conflict of interest brewing? Do this. Let's read. Verse 21, David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David in the rear with the gear, right? 
and he who had been left at the brook Basor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, 400 people. And David approached the people and he greeted them, right? They're hugging on each other's necks. I mean, that was a great battle, man. You look awesome, man. You look sweaty and tired. Come on in. We got some, some, uh, some food cooking. We'll be back here. We got some food for you. We're ready to go. We got some water. And all of the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David, by the way, that's very interesting, uh, <laughs> worthless and wicked, right? Uh, in other places, they're called mighty men of valor. And in this case, they start grumbling. He's like, nope, they're just wicked uh, and worthless. Because they did not go with us, they said, we will not give them any spoils that we have recovered except to every man can have his wife and his children and they may lead them and depart. So the two, the 200 people that left behind, mm-mm. Sorry. I know that was your clock on your mantle at your house, but you didn't fight for it. Take your woman, take your kids, the clock stays here. All, everything. And now we have a crisis here. Because not only has David been ostracized from the Philistines and ostracized from the Israelites, he stands to lose a third of the following he currently has. Is this a strategic problem for David? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So David does something that, uh, as I have kind of read and studied, this is the first time in recorded history where the guys who didn't fight also got paid. Changed perhaps the whole format of a military's way of operating from a top-down way If you're in the guard, everybody gets paid. Even if you didn't fight, even if you didn't fight. What about the people in finance and personnel? Yes, they get paid too. What about the chaplains? Yes, absolutely they get paid. Uh, They're non-combatants, but uh, they get paid too. Um, But look what it says. Verse 23, David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that has come against us, and who will listen to you in this matter? For as this, as as his share is who goes down to the battle, so has, shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Uh, I don't know if y'all got a chance to meet Drew Williams. He taught Sunday school for me last week. Um, but something he always says when he's teaching is, "There's one hero of the Bible, and who is that? That's God." It's important to notate that David takes this critical moment to come back to his roots and go, guys, we're not here fighting for our honor and glory. We're here fighting on behalf of God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace and mercy, not works. Okay? So we're going to share the wealth and make sure that the kingdom of God looks differently than the other kingdoms around us. And he begins to pivot and change the way things look here in this early stages. Let's see if we can get to the end of chapter 30 before uh, we get cut off by time. So it had been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So from this point forward, when he became the official king, if you were in David's army, you were going to get taken care of. It was a covenant grace-based relationship. Interesting, huh? What does the relationship with the Christian and Christ? It's a grace-based covenant relationship. God says, I'm going to take care of you because you need to be taken care of. And that's kind of being established here. Verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, 
he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoils of the enemy of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, and to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, and to those who were in Jatir, and to those who were in Aror, and to those who were in Sifmoth, and to those who were in Esthemeo. If you just say things confidently, it sounds good, okay? <laughs> and to those who were in Rakal, and to those who were in the cities of Jerah, Mielites, and to those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and to those who were in Hormah, and to those who were in Borashan, and to those who were in Athak, and to those who were in Hebron, and all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. Um, what did David do? After he won this big financial victory, what did David do? All right. Why? Do what? Yes. Why? Keep, where, we haven't read about it yet. That's, that's chapter 31. What does he know is happening a, a week's journey north of him? A battle between Israel and the Philistines, which he feels pretty confident what has happened. Philistines have won, which means that there's going to be a void of leadership. Whose side did he need to be on? Who did he need, who did he need good, good uh, uh, poll numbers from? All these people. So he made sure he sent out, like, hey, you need your $600 check? Hey, how about $600 per person in your family? How about it? Woo! All right? So he is sending out, he is greasing the skids for a transition of power. David is a man of God, but don't think for a second he was a fool. This man was wise and smart and had a vision both for the spiritual and the physical realm. He was good at relationships. And he knew how to get stuff taken care of uh, on a lot of different levels. All right. Any questions or comments?